Welcome back, nerds. This is part two of Nate and I's discussion of chapter eight of Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. Uh, we entered the Aerith Sea from Machina Forest, acquainted ourselves with the floating islands, and saw Prison Island, and strolled around Alkamath, saw some scheming going on among the uh, High Entia royalty here, and all this is in the good graces of the Emperor. And then after a gazillion side quests and conversational tangents, we're getting back to the plot. Let's get started. So we... Kill the Chromar, we free the engineers and they fix the teleporter. We pat ourselves on the back and return to the capital. Back at the capital, we cut to a scene between the Emperor and Alvis. They're talking about Telethias. Alvis says that the Telethia that Melio defeated in Machina Forest gained as much power as it did due to high ether levels. And in other words, our ether protection is weakening. Our ether protection is weakening. And so it begins, the resurrection of the Bionis. And I have to ask myself, so less ether equals more protected? Which might be adjacent to that concept earlier from uh, where you had you spoke with a citizen who says that they no longer worship Bionis. So Bionis secretes ether, that's its blood or something. And if, according to Alvis, our ether protection is weakening, because there's more ether, they feel more threatened. Uh, I'm missing some data points to like draw a conclusion on that but something's there yeah they're talking about resurrection of bionis and earlier ryan stated like hey doesn't that mean we all die and all of civilization on this thing collapses as like he moves his leg or scratches an itch on his back and murders thirty thousand people right so yeah maybe the resurrection isn't that great and so the the worshiping of the bionis and using ether and stimulating all of these um, living veins of this being, they might be of the opinion like, hey, this is bad. Maybe we should just chill and live a quiet, non-disturbing existence on this thing so that we don't all die. Alvis cannot say definitively that Shulk is the Harbinger of Doom, but the investiture ceremony must happen as soon as possible. The investiture ceremony is the event in which Melia is rendered queen. However, she must endure the trial of the tomb first. Yumea encourages her to take this test, again, wondering if this is a trap. Melia accepts the trial of the tomb. She will lead the High Entia despite her mixed heritage. Yumea thinks to herself, You are not fit to be Empress. Not now, not ever. And Alvis hears her thoughts and goes, hmm. I wasn't yeah. sure if I uh, if I was imagining that or if you would have noticed that too, that it seems like Alvis actually heard the inner thought. The same way that Telethia have mind reading powers, Alvis has his own Telethia. Maybe there's some synchronization there. He's developed some of those skills for himself. Oh my god, he's half Telethia. He's got some Telethia blood. I don't know. Either that or that's... Telethia's blood. Either that or it's part of like the... Uh, you know, Shulk wields a Monado, can see shit, and Alvis has the ability to pick that thing up and see some shit himself. He is a seer, but mm -hmm. that's, that seemed less like a vision and more like he heard that happen live. Somebody thought something and he heard it. Right. We're back at our prison room, our relaxation room. We're not prisoners here. Oh, there's more fucking quests now that we're back. So we're here, and there's a big gathering of Hyantia's outside. We weren't invited, but Melia's out there. The Emperor addresses the crowd. Um, runic video screens are displaying his 
face, and he announces his successor. It's Melia, and the party now realize that Melia is a princess. She's uh, standing alongside the Emperor wearing a white porcelain mask. This suddenly makes sense to me because there was at least one Hyantia citizen that I've spoken with earlier who says he's really wanted to see what Melia looks like. And it appears to me that when she's out in public, she's wearing, she's concealing her, her likeness. She's hiding. She's wearing this mask. And so I don't know if it's ceremonial or for some other reason, but she's got this mask on. It looks kind of like the one that Tyria, the assassin agent of Yumea, is wearing, but it's a, it's more ceremonial and less anonymous murderer. Yeah, and there's talk of mixed heritage. I don't know how much of that information is accessible to the public. It seems like it is. I would imagine there's talk of first consort, second consort. We learn some details about that later, but essentially... I would think the public knows about this, so if there were an identifying element of Melia that would maybe discredit her via mixed heritage, and I don't know if the mask is hiding any of that. I haven't seen a stark difference between her and other High Antias, so it seems like the mask just serves a religious function alone. Like, I, I haven't seen it come into play that this thing has an actual purpose within the events to follow. So Yumea is not present for this public ceremony. She's back in the throne room and she's scheming again. Uh, Tyrea is with her. Tyrea says that she will kill the party upon her request. Yumea says something strange. The savage who discovers fire remains a savage. Say the word and the captive homes shall be no more. The savage who discovers fire remains a savage. I feel like this is analogous to Shulk holding the Monado, and just because he's got the Monado, it don't make him a badass or the chosen one. I think she should have more appreciation for the first Hom or Hyantia or whatever that creates fire because, yeah, you're still a savage, but that's progress. It reminds yeah. me of a certain lyric of a song. I can't really quote it outright, but essentially saying, like, you know, the gods watched as the humans discovered fire and laughed. And then they looked again, and the humans were developing nukes, and they cried in fear. The song Nate is referencing here is The Grand Experiment by Minneapolis hip-hop collective Doom Tree. So, um, it, it's kind of that thing of, you know, like, hey, the Homs are stupid, and he's playing with fire, how cute, you know, but it's like, this dude is gonna light up this Monado pretty hardcore, so I wouldn't dismiss him just yet. Definitely. Callion overhears Yumea's scheming, and he's like, wait, what's going on? That's so strange. But Callion overhears Yumea saying she has hatred for Melia's contaminated bloodline. We continue to endure the contamination of our bloodline by perpetuating this wretched tradition of a high Entia first consort and a Homs second consort. For how long must I suffer these Homs? Um... And we learn that there are that it, that an emperor has two consorts. The first consort is another Hyantia, and a Homs is the second consort. We haven't run into a Homs consort yet, uh, this chapter here. But it begs the question: Where is she? Of the same observation, I almost wonder if there is a. She has left this mortal plane at this mm -hmm. point because, or, or if it's just like a political consideration, the emperor gets into a little bit of that later. Like 
the consorts don't seem to be romantic partners to the emperor. They seem to be political considerations. Maybe, maybe it was eaten by a mechon. Oh, that would be sad. That would be sad. Maybe it's inside a mechon based yeah. on other scenes we've seen. Possibly. We cut back to the party. Shulk shouts, wait a minute, spontaneously, and Ryan becomes a believer in visions again. No, Shulk doesn't have a vision in that moment. But the exclamation Shulk lets out piques Ryan's interest in visions, and now he believes in them again and is not just gaslighting. Ryan uh, so kind of uh, thrashes wildly in his uh, helpfulness and just sheer stupidity. We are attacked by five masked high entities that all look like Tyrea. Maybe one of them is Tyrea. Junbin drops this incredible line about room service. <laughs> They're menacing us, they're threatening us, they're semicircling us, and Denman goes, Excuse me, we ordered room service an hour ago. I'm afraid you've already eaten your last meal. The chunky bass mini-boss music plays, and we fight them. There are wizard, guard, and scout Antias. I'm literally 12 levels higher than them, and I <laughs> kick the shit out of them. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you, SideQuestverse. Side quest lands, whatever it is, for making us the swole gods of combat. Right. So they're just they're just a footnote. They're just a bloody stain on my boot. And Alvis and Callion appear afterwards. Alvis identifies these as inquisitors. And Callion reveals himself as the brother to Melia, half brother, let's say. Alvis says that he believes they are inquisitors of the Bionite Order, which Nate you spoke of earlier. Assassins devoted to the Imperial family, although shadowy, and we thought they were they've been gone for a millennia. That's something indicative of this chapter as a whole, of you know, I I learned about the Bionite Order kind of being name dropped just talking to NPCs or whatever, but in the self-same chapter, they're being revealed and kind of expounded upon. So uh, in this game's other places where like a slow burn was allowed, this chapter is kind of tossing you headlong into lots of ideas real fast. The masked Hyentia are from the Bionite Order, unless they're Melia. They never reveal their true faces. Uh, right. Shulk says that we need to help Melia. She may be in huge trouble. Shulk wants to help Melia. And Kaelin says, well, how do you know she's in trouble? And Alvis interjects. He says, Shulk and I have the same gift. Melia is in danger and we have to find her now. We cut to the tomb of the Hyentia where Melia will be doing this process. The tomb is this fortress looking structure at one of the far ends of Aerith Sea. You can access it by teleporting from the teleporter just below the capital. Melia is joined by Larithia and she says, win this mission or die. And, and we still feel like she's, you know, drumming up some trap for her and blows her a kiss goodbye that was kind of strange it's in line with the uh eye shape hypothesis eye shape hypothesis so that was a brief cutscene. we're back at the group yet another cutscene. caitlin says that those of the two must do it alone and we really shouldn't interfere but dunbin engineers this bizarre loophole excuse for us to intervene and the loophole is basically we are homs we don't believe any of your stupid bullshit we just want people to not die, so fuck your tradition. We're going in there. We're saving Melia. If you got a problem with it, well, fuck off. We get Kaylin's approval, and then we have permission to enter the tomb. And so we do with Alvis. Alvis is a guest in our party now. Before we enter the 
Hyantia tomb, Alvis talks a little bit about himself. This is our first, at least, semi-detailed window into Alvis's history. He indulges us and says he comes from a long line of seers dedicated to serving the family. He is a Homs, not a Hyantia. However, his ancestry is not easily explained, and his ability to see the future is very complicated. You might say I have my own ritual. However, Shulk has no ritual of his own. I was going to say, in this conversation, um, the Monado carries out the will of its master. Magnified greatly, it has the power to control the very fabric of our world. Ether. Control the ether, and your will is made reality. And that's not sh- clear to me whether it's Shulk or the Bionis. Is Shulk the oh, master? Sure. Yeah. Well, we, according to the Hyentia legend, the Cho. I wonder if it's the chosen one because there's a lot of questions about the intentions of the chosen one. And if it's carrying out the intentions of the master, maybe it's... For sure. I, I'm kind of leaning towards Shulk, but I have to... I'm taking in like a percent consideration that it's also literally Sword of the Bionis. So mm-hmm. that that's kind of... I'm weighing those two options of like, is Shulk some sort of chosen one because he, he has what it takes and he has the spirit of a good person. And so, you know, he he's like the the link character where if he touches the triforce nothing but good shit's gonna happen Mm -hmm. you know but i'm also weighing against bionis he put this sword here to achieve its ends so uh definitely a mystery looking forward to unraveling we open a huge gate and enter cutting back to melia now who is already inside now that we're in control of melia we get a tooltip describing how to solo with her the tooltip suggests that we fire off the fire elementals after summoning them rather than keep them to sustain buffs and cc with sleep but as mentioned earlier we are leveled up quite high and what could have been a fun gauntlet of one-on-one encounters you just kind of crush rather fast and this section of the game it wraps up pretty fast at least it did for me and there weren't a lot of fights either it kind of begged the question of like why even make the tutorial i guess if you were under leveled and you didn't do any grinding then you might be in a bit of a pickle here but Mm -hmm. yeah i i just i just hit buttons and i won so just um, hit buttons one thing I'll say is as Melia enters the tomb, she engages like a, a greeting voice and, and she responds to it kind of in a religious reverent fashion in a way. But the voice to me reads as robotic. Like this is a machine talking mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of obvious. Like everything's a machine. So I almost wonder is like, we, we talked about this, like state, the high NTR in of just coasting along for, millennia or whatever it is whatever the length of time is um is the dichotomy of treating machinery and programming as this like divine element lost upon hyantia like when i'm when i'm seeing this it's like oh that's clearly the voice of a computer and she's talking to it as like some high serif Uh, that's the sense i got and it's like that Mm -hmm. that's a little unsettling to me at face value after speaking with that voice she enters through a stone door and into the hall of spirits which is a huge shaft covered in stone panels covered in writing that looks like kanji stepping on a rune on the ground creates a golden magical walkway that allows you to cross these gaps and there are more of those panel robots uh, throughout that's the the predominant enemy types we run into are automatons they're they're robots cutting back to where are we 
we back with the main party now? Are we? We keep we flip to and from these two halves here. Hold on. Yeah. No, we don't. Do we? I my next bullet point is uh, our party related. I can light into that if you like. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is the dumb dumb moment. Okay. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> yeah, I I have the words I have written is Ryan is Dumbo cheeks. As I explained before, Dunban, the defense systems are designed to prevent uninvited. Well, what does this do? Don't touch. <laughs> no no ideas were bucked in the making of this chapter <laughs> or but no ideas were bucked up in the making of this chapter everything that's about to happen is officially ride time we get into the first room there's a panel Alvis is trying to explain the technology of this place and Ryan goes what does this button do <laughs> Yes. The floor drops open and we all fall to our deaths. Game over. No, we don't have a game over. We don't have a game over. We we it has to be interesting, so you know. Yeah. There's always there's always those dungeons in RPGs and Zelda games or whatever where you do all this shit and uh you finally get to the treasure at the end and then some other guy shows up and it's like, nah, I'm taking the treasure or Zelda shows up and like just walks right in and you're like, wait, how the hell did you get here? So uh, mm-hmm. at least this game kind of creates that uh, a little bit of that dichotomy of like, yes, Melia can just walk straight in, but we kind of have to take a roundabout path. So they do a good job of creating a dungeon without creating the similar question of how did Melia do this on her own? Yeah, it's a, it's a trap for bandits and morons. And Ryan was happy to play the part. Ryan, yeah, very, very enthusiastic about it. We cut back to Melia. We're in the ceremony hall now. And that robotic narrator we spoke with. Um, says, you have done well, my descendant. Are you the progenitor of Antigua? Antigua is the emperor's surname. And, well, I guess Melia's surname, too. There's a, it's an ancestor replica. It's a machine, uh, a captured likeness of the ancestor. And I am reminded of the Gazel Ministry. How about you, Tyler? Yeah. I, I thought this was kind of like the meeting the architect at the end of Matrix 2. They were dropping some serious meta story stuff on us all at once here. Our purpose, as decreed by the Bionis, is linked to our genetic sequence. We have spent millennia analyzing sequences to free ourselves from the curse. Only a certain gene set will unlock the mechanism and set us free. Yeah, this chapter could kind of have been its own game or like four chapters in some ways. Like I said, we're peeling the onion. And we are in chapter 8 of 18, right? Uh, 17. Oh, okay. So eight of seventeen. We're gonna be here a while, Tyler. If this keeps, I think so. If this keeps going at this pace, holy shit, man. Yeah, we're probably gonna wrap in September, maybe. You're gonna be a dad. I was, yeah, I was hoping we would wrap this up by then, but, but that ship sailed quite a while ago, and who knows? Maybe she, maybe, uh, maybe she comes early. The voice says, it, it spouts these funny statistics. It says 80% Hom's gene integration. Estimates of eight generations. Our purpose is linked to our genetic sequence. We must free ourselves from this curse. And only a certain gene set will set us free. 
this must play into the consorts where we're trying to mix Homs and high entia genes to create some sort of I don't know what, but there's a point to all of this gene mixing and robot ancestor knows all about it. Yeah, the gene mixing, this taps into something I was talking about earlier, but didn't really want to elaborate until we got here. Uh, maybe the Homs have a little bit more intellectual and spiritual freedom than the High Antia. They are less susceptible to that like societal fugue state that seems to encapsulate High Antian society, as we've talked about. And they're more heart-spirit-driven. I don't know. But it seems like uh, the Emperor is enthusiastic about that uh, development within Melia and this ancestor replica is the same. So this has been something they've been thinking about for a while is the, I think he says is the quote, free ourselves from the curse of the Bionis. Was that mentioned in that conversation? I, I have that written down. I don't have the words of the Bionis. I have the curse. Yeah. Okay. So free ourselves from the curse by integrating with Hobbes. So that. That right there tells me something's up that the, even hundreds of years ago, this figure that is now digitally recorded wanted this to happen. So that conversation wraps up. We have 100,000 questions when we only had 10,000 questions before this conversation. And Tyrea shows up, the masked assassin. She survived the ambush that we had earlier. It's funny to me that in this conversation, there are two masked high entities speaking with one another. And Tyrea calls her a filthy half-breed that has no right to the throne. A filthy Homs half-breed has no right to the throne. And a showdown is about to happen, but we cut back to the main party here we're all you know getting up from our fall we fell into a pit of water we are all fine but we give ryan a serious a serious um we chap his ass we chap his ass pretty good and ricky goes hard under ryan and i have to laugh about that because i feel like ricky knows he is not a great party member he probably feels like he's the worst party member. But then Ryan has these, well, Ryan moments and everybody kind of turns on him. Ricky must be thinking in his head, hey, you know what? Maybe I don't have to be the worst party member. Maybe I can be second worst. <sighs> Who puts a great big hole somewhere like that? As I explained, it's a defense mechanism. What a mess, Ryan. Friend not clever touching button. <sighs> I'm with these guys, Ryan. How was I supposed to know that was gonna happen? And so we have these back and forth between Ryan and Ricky, where they're just hard scrabbling at each other, throwing elbows at each other, proverbially, to not be the worst party member. I think it's hilarious. I think you'll find we had to take the long way because somebody pushed a certain button. <laughs> somebody mean Ryan! Shut it, hairball. Yeah, and the way it's delivered, even with some of the other party members and Alvis and whatever, I, I go back and forth as like, is this was this supposed to be a comic relief moment for Ryan, or am I supposed to genuinely like be moved to like, it's time for character development, Ryan. You need to change core parts of your being. Like, they play it off a little bit too seriously with some of the characters, and then stupidly with Riki. So. I just, like, tonally, I don't know how to feel about these scenes, and I kind of wish they'd just move on. It, it lingers a little bit too long for me. Mm -hmm. We get control of the party here, and we navigate the high Antia tomb. There are 
robot enemies to fight, walls to climb, rooms to go through. There's tasty sausages lying around on the ground. It mentions Ricky eating it in the tooltip. So I have to ask myself, how many hearts does Ricky get when you offer it to him in the in the item gifting menu mechanism? And it's just one. Oh, I thought God. it'd be much more than one. Womp womp. They set you up hard on that one. Yeah, I, I found a tasty sausage on a climbing handhold, and I was like, what the, what is this doing here? I don't expect to find tasty sausage here. I don't know what Mally is dropping around here. I don't know if this is part of a trap that Lady Larithia's got for us. She's going to lure, <laughs> lure us into a, into a laundry basket with the, with the pencil holding it up on one end tied to a rope. Tyler, but, I'm supposed to be yeah, the one luring her with tasty sausage, not the other <laughs> way around. That spicy chorizo. Uh, yeah, and we've we've said that this tomb has not been visited for like hundreds of years, so this has to be just pure oh. gameplay consideration. Not, Gross. Yeah, I don't know. That's molded sausage. We come we Wait. come up to a big giant glowing ball. Tyler, Ryan says that is a big ball of something, and. After which a giant monster comes out, but it's a monster we recognize. It is a Orluga Rufus, and I don't know what what the Rufus modifier to the Orluga means, but hey, it's it's a boss character or like a, a mid boss, right? Mm -hmm. It's a mid boss that I completely destroy. I typed this sentence in the middle of the fight in my <laughs> notes while they just auto attacked him to death and no one took yeah. any damage. Yeah, he's he's an Orluga, but he's got panel technology mechanisms on his back and on his stoppers. And the giant he releases electrical charges around himself. He has a laser from his back. He's constantly missing. Is my evasion that high? Easy, 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 easy fight. And the giant ball in the sky persists after his summoning. So this wasn't like a Orluga mass transmutation or anything like that it seems just a, it's like a summoning ball and it did not impede our progress whatsoever the room has climbing handholds to traverse around it um i have a note here that dunbin failed climbing school as i traverse the walls using the jpeg handholds that are just pasted onto the side they have no geometry whatsoever um yeah. dunbin repeatedly falls to a one hp death and is spawned on the nearest piece of flat geometry before once again jumping suicidally below um, yet again. Wow. Each time Ryan has something to say, Ryan tells him, don't give up, I'm right next to you. <laughs> so yes, Dunman keeps jumping because Ryan encouraged him to not give up. Ironic and sad. Yes. Uh, it happens again on my next set of handholds and I realize the cause is actually Ryan because Dunbin is my second party member, Ryan is my third, Dunbin is second behind me, but Ryan climbs faster than Dunbin and pushes him off in his pursuit to catch up to me. Ryan, Ryan adds the statement, sorry, I've got to focus. Me too, as I find another tasty sausage on one of the handholds. So, yeah, uh, and, when, and when Ricky loses a lot of health, he says he gets hungry. Uh -oh. And he's ready for some sausage. <laughs> Being near death is uh, makes you want to eat a meal. We barrel down a hallway where we can hear Melia speaking with uh, Tyrell, Tyrese, Tyrone. 
Tyrell. Holy crap, so too is a Telethia. It's here in the tomb. It's, it doesn't look like the same Telethia we fought in Machna Forest, but this is manta ray-like. It's got a large undulating blanket-like body or like a magic carpet with the head and arm structure pointed out one side of it. It reminds me of a boss I might have seen in Final Fantasy X, but I can't think of a specific one. It's kind of woman-like. It has a Hyentia bird mask. There are wings and fins flapping all over it. Highly textured blues and purples are all over its skin. Um, and this is a boss battle between not just Tyria, but also the Telethia called a Solidium I'm gonna go ahead and say that this was the one in the like breeding tank or whatever you want to call it yeah. at the end of the last chapter. Yeah, the way it floated was very much like the way this one's floating, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought so too. So this must be a creation of, of Lady Lorithia's. Maybe that was her voice in that cutscene. Oh, speaking of voices, um to Tyria's battle noise, not the worst fucking thing ever. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this or had your sound uh, at a distractingly normal level, but Tyria has the same uh, gain issues that the uh, Mecha on Big Boys did, where all of the normal sounds will be happening, and then she just screams into the heavens whenever you damage her. I did. I don't have a note there, but I do remember it in the fight. Yeah. I wanted to focus Tyria first, but I can't. The Telethia gets toppled super quickly, and so I don't really care. I pour in the damage. The Telethia charges up a Delta Cannon, which Ryan absorbs for zero damage. <laughs> and with the Telethia down, I can focus Tyria. She has a skill called Guilty Bomb that binds, as in like rooting you to the floor, which I think is a pretty cool name for a skill, Guilty Bomb. Um, when we defeat Tyria, her mask falls from her face, but she's hiding it with her, with her forearm here. And she escapes because we are distracted by the Telethia, which is self-destructing. And we're in a rather contained room here. There's not... There's no time to to escape. And it turns out that Alvis defends us from the blast with an enormous shield here. He saved us. Unfortunately, Tyria escapes to a scheme another day. We are back at the capital here. Alvis is briefing the Emperor about what's going on. He describes that the Bionic Order is dedicated to protecting Bionis which was issued by an older emperor, like a former emperor, not an older emperor. And Eumea yeah. has been arrested. Melia is completely affirmed by the emperor and Kallian as well. He will become their leader and the investiture will happen tomorrow. Uh, so it seems like our meddling wasn't a factor uh, ultimately, you know, because mm -hmm. she had to go to the tomb and do this trial by herself. It, it's like it was zero sum because we meddled, but also Eumea and her servants meddled so it kind of canceled each other out to where melia just did the fucking trial right so uh our crew kind of postulates a little bit on why was melia chosen in the first place and not callian but they don't have access to some of our um perspective as players putting together all of these pieces that we learned from the uh, simulated ancient that Melia met and mm -hmm. all of those things. So we've kind of got a bigger picture mm -hmm. of she's being chosen for this process of a mixed race uh, leader. Yeah, we're not valuing the pure blood angle, but mm -hmm. we don't know why. We have some clues, but we don't know why. Shulk has an opportunity to speak with the Emperor directly and ask the question we came here to ask in the first place may we have access to prison island the emperor um, says no right i was a little bit lost in this conversation because initially it said like he was leading up to a yes and then 
we walked away with a no, and I might have missed the point at which the conversation churned. Can you help me with that, Tyler? Yes, we walked away with an I need to think about it. Okay. The conversation begins with the Emperor thanking us for helping Melia. I hear you seek. And then he goes into a legend that explains that Bionis will awaken again and that the Telethia are disturbing the ether. So is disturbing the ether a, a means to resurrect Bionis? Sure seems like that way. And then he reads from a tablet on the wall. It's kind of like it's been cut out and then put in here very much like the other one was. And then he explains that they meant to trap the Monado to ensure prosperity for their empire. If Bionis awakens and leverages all of that ether power, all life will perish. However, the Mechon invasion must be stopped. Uh, we ask for admission to Prison Island. The Emperor says that on Prison Island, our forefathers sealed something away, but all records about what was sealed are lost. There's no way to know what it is. Our forefathers must have had good reason. And so that is what's giving the Emperor pause for allowing us to enter. We cut away to Melia walking in a field as the Emperor continues speaking. And, he's, and he asks us to be not her protector, but her friends. And then we're treated to our final scene, which, very much like in previous chapters, is a window into what's going on in Makanis. The Telethia are on the move. Yes. That fleshy fool will go for the Monado. What of the faces? Repairs to metal are complete. And Nemesis? Nemesis is... The Homs with the Monado. He has reached Erythsea. Yes. And there is only one place for them to go. Yet he will not dare unleash such power. No matter. Bugs must still be exterminated. It is time to test our new toy. Commence the assault on Bionis. There's a new voice we're hearing, and he's communicating orders to another voice, a woman's voice. Maybe it's the woman's voice that we heard in the laboratory scene with the soul transfer moment and it sounds like we're getting ready for battle um he's asking if repairs are complete on metal face and that is our new secret weapon ready to be deployed and that new secret weapon is probably going to be that thing that had the soul transfer they gave it a name too oh my god what was it was it face nemesis right face nemesis yes is face nemesis ready for battle and 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 so we're going to battle all of these shots in this scene are of what looks like a single new mechon. It's predominantly green. It looks rather large. Of course, they're all large, but this one looks very large. It has shiny green armor, although there are shiny yellow and red accents around as well. And I feel like we're going to be meeting a new Mechon character sometime soon, maybe in the next chapter. Yeah. So I have like so, one last note. To, yes. For for me, in this whole chapter revolves around Hyantia learning about them, their motivations and everything. And I definitely I like the Emperor. I think he's a pretty stand up guy. He's got some he has bucked up his ideas, right? And yeah. uh Melia, the the half blood is kind of cool. But when I look at like pretty much everyone else I met, um there's this degree of just like a, a systematic misunderstanding or just inability for me to connect to their motivations other than just like blatant racism or whatever. I, I don't tap into anything deeper for them. And it kind of reminds me of 
I don't know if you ever watched. Did you ever watch House of Cards, Tyler? No. Okay. It's a show on Netflix. I'll just keep it real quick. Of started out really strong, maybe top three flubbed endings or like degeneration of a show over the course of its lifespan for me. Um, just getting worse and worse. And it's because as they opened up and elaborated on characters, I realized there is nothing deeper to these characters that that singular motivation that they were given at, at the start. And then once they arrived or received some of their goals to find out, like there is nothing more to these characters than just, you know, Oh, this, in the case of the high India, this lady's racist, you know, um, that was something that I felt in this game, it was always doing really well. And in this case, the going to the high end capital was just a lot of characters that were very one dimensional to me in the, the aspect of like, you're an emperor and you have a consort and she stands at your side every single day. And then you find out, Hey, she sucks. And all right, I am going to send her to jail. Uh, you know, it's like, can you put a little bit of like, oh, wow, that betrayal hurt me or, you know, this, I'm reeling from these events or whatever. Everybody just seems so poised and matter of fact and like kind of uh, opaque to me that it's like, I'm a bit bored with these characters at the end of the day. And it didn't have help that this was a chapter where kind of everything felt like this glossy kind of boring sheen in comparison to the rest of the game to me. I don't know if you relate to any of that, but does that make sense? There were a lot of cutscenes and a lot of lore to pay attention to, to make notes on, at least in our, in our regards here. Does it make sense? I don't know. We had a lot of character development. We learned the true nature of Melia. We learned, we got to meet the emperor. We got to learn more about Elvis. We might be exhausted with character introductions because we met another four or five of them in this chapter here. And so maybe there's some character fatigue, character fatigue in a chapter packed with character moments. That might Uh, be it. Yeah. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if I do pull back and just like look at a perspective of like all of these people are here to serve Melia's arc, maybe I can look at it a little bit more beneficially. Next chapter, I'm expecting we will have a high energy battle. It might take place at Prison Island. I don't think we'll be advancing to new zones, although usually we do. I have this feeling that because this place is an epicenter of Bionis and because I know that we haven't gone to Prison Island yet and because I know that there's a Mechon assault in the wings and because I know that there's a ceremony coming for Melia tomorrow, but I feel like we're going to be staying here in the Aerith Sea for at least another chapter. I feel that too. I want a hovercraft so that I can mow the lawn of the Aerith Sea's uh, oh, map fog. So nice. yeah. Or one of those um, air defense vehicles. Yeah. Or just drop me a fucking map <laughs> item that oh, sure. reveals yeah. the whole thing. I would be Fills completely content in that. Right. Find the Sheikah Tower. This has been an episode of Hero with a Thousand Potions recorded on April 18th, 2022. We've got an email. No one's emailing us yet, but it's hero with 1000potions at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Discord. Good luck finding us. But our Twitter handle is hero with 1000pot. 
And we're lonely, so send us emails, please. Tell us your favorite high Antia vixen lady and what you would like them to do to you. Or, you know, how the podcast is going. That's fine, too. And join us next time. We're, if you're playing the game along with us, Crush Chapter 9 before crushing that episode. We're looking forward to, to you joining us again uh, next week here. We're happy to get back into the swing of things and we'll be more regular with our uh, releases as well. We will be, and then you'll go ahead and have a kid. So uh, good luck with that, Tyler. Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. You will learn. Oh, my God. Stop it. <laughs> well, um, I'm Nate, and I was born into a world of strife against the odds. Everyone do good! Thank you. That's Ricky. <laughs> We were talking about musical opinions, and this is a longer story, but I'm just going to say that I I gave a quick little opinion about Muse's first three albums, you know, as I experienced them. And then I qualified that opinion with like, hey, you know, listen, I'm not much of a Muse guy, so take this opinion with a grain of salt. And Tyler, you replied to me, and I... Knowing your personality, I know you didn't mean this mean it this way, but in my head I read it as you saying to me, Well, Nate, I am a muse guy. Like in a menacing manner that my opinions were about to be eviscerated by a true muse aficionado. But you were very gracious and accepting of my opinions, and thus Tyler uh, granted me access to a playlist of a more modern playlist of their music that um, I actually really enjoyed. And I found that in my younger years, I was not able to appreciate some of their um, later entries. But I sat and thought about it for a bit, and I realized there might be another element that kind of colored my opinion. And it's this. the um, the Their style changed a little bit at the end of Black Holes to their next release. But probably more impactful for me was that my ex-wife listened to them a lot and uh, Invincible was our actual fucking wedding dance. So, yeah, that's that's probably why I took a hard break from them and that my, my actual musical stylings might not have been the key influence of why I stopped listening. So, I give Tyler credit for uh, getting me back in the zone a little bit with this playlist, and I used it to knock out these side quests with a, a little bit more spice in my life. That's great, dude. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Try to keep the anthems to uh, absolute minimum. Yeah, yeah. There were there were a couple of them in there. I'll just say that supremacy it had to be worthwhile. Yeah, supremacy is kind of the exact thing I meant when I felt like they transitioned to like an operatic anthem based rock. Like if you notice how the music quiets and lingers during the verse and just like, almost like the band is just waiting for him to deliver the verse in a way. Um, you can kind of imagine he's on stage in costume with a sweeping authoritarian set piece dimly lit 
in the background. Does that make sense? It does. Supremacy in particular, I think that was pitched to United Artists as an option for a James Bond theme song that was later denied and then reappropriated for a proper Muse album. That makes so much sense. Um, You know, and when I listen to United States of, um, there's lots of Queen moments in there. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, It it was definitely a transition away from me. I felt like Knights of Sodonia had so much exposure for them that it kind of said, hey, this really works for you guys. Let's try more of this. I don't know if that just as an artistic direction, they were inspired by it and felt like they wanted to do more of their own volition or if it hit a commercial note. I don't want to peg anyone into that that hole as artists because, you know, we all got to make our paper, right? But it is what it is. So um, mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a stylistic shock for me. I'm, I'm more of a plug-in baby kind of guy. First time I heard Bliss, it blew my freaking mind. Yeah. And so... This is an all-time jam. Yeah, there's a lot of gems, and there's there's some new stuff in there that you linked that the first time I was like, yeah, all right, all right cool, and then like on fifth or sixth plays, I was like, wait, this one really kind of fucking rocks, you know? So mm-hmm. there's some good things. Um, I'll say this too: uh, undisclosed desires is the kind, the exact kind of thing that like I would have been turned away by in my twenties, transitioning to the kind of that thing, but as an adult who's had like longer, deeper relationships that require mature pursuits and goals than when I was 20, the song definitely listens and reads different lyrically. Um, Mm. It kind of makes me think of like Don Quixote and the transformative nature of having a transcendent perspective on other people instead of just being bogged down by bullshit. So um, choosing to see good in others. I like that about that song. And when uh, I think we talked about it a little bit, you had mentioned something about like that's that songs play in Europe. I, I heard, I read it in, I think I read it in an internet. I think I read it in an interview that undisclosed desires is like their most popular song in Germany, or at least they like scream louder for it. It shows them any other song, any other song. And it, I just, it's a good song, but I would cry out for 20 other songs harder than that one. For sure. I, I so was, you, you, you kind of mentioned a connection to maybe like Depeche Mode, right? Yeah. And, that. yeah. and I, it was funny that you texted that to me because I immediately was like, there's no connection sound-wise of these two songs, but I myself was thinking of Suffer Well by Depeche Mode. And so I was like, wait, Tyler, like we should have just been friends in college. We are so fucking in sync uh, in certain areas that it's kind of scary. Yeah. It's a shame we weren't. Uh, lastly, I'll say that Reapers uh, out of the new playlist you gave me um, mm. is the exact kind of thing that drew me to the band in the first place. There's a lot of flavors within that single track. So yeah, it, it is very origin. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's Definitely. why I included it. And I say, you know, if anything I've said in this listeners, uh, offends you or my opinions <laughs> sound bad. I just know that my taste in music completely sucks. I just sent Tyler a clip today of absolute 
brain rot music and uh he was like what the fuck was that so um i've been listening to a song called koku by a band called petite brabancon which is apparently a, a breed of dog uh so go listen to that and then dismiss all of my opinions outright hello <laughs> no i'm not gonna start like that. it's terrible <laughs> It's been a little while. All right. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Let's, let's get composed. Let's get composed. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Here with a Thousand Potions. <laughs> Maybe it's been too long. We've just completely lost our mojo. She also points out the Imperial City. Uh, Alchemoth? Is that right? Did I spell that right? Yeah, it's it's Alchemoth. Alchemoth? I have Arkhamoth written down here, too. Alchemoth. Okay. It's Alka. <clears throat> the accordion of your penis. Something like that. My game penis is fully erect in this uh, moment. That is a thing. You know, sometimes you just love a game so much, you, you have to admit your game penis is ready to go. Is there a word for that? A game we just in, we a, just invented the term. A, a, joist, a joystick stiffy? A joystiffy. Stickfy? Sorry, am I am I hitting you hard and fast with no deep? No, I just no, no, you're not. And we'll keep this. We'll okay. keep this. Deep thoughts by Jack Handy. Do you remember that? Was that his name? Jack who? Yeah, cut that if I got the name wrong. That's an SNL thing. Okay. Way back in the day when I was little. What is this? What's going on? Total extermination. Excuse me, total extension, because that's the note I wrote. Uh oh. Total <laughs> utter extension. Well, Shulk is going to extend that sword. We know it's it going to happen. Well, we've got, shoot, we've got to do that conversation thing at the very, very end. I've got, I've got mine. Oh, you have yours? Shit. Is yours a, a starter or an ender? I, I'm completely freeform on this. I'm just using quotes. You give me one. I don't have one ready. My mine was born into a world of strife against the odds. Who says that? Dunbin in combat. Oh, okay. Um. Yes. 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 Yes.